0: Jesus, we thank you so much for calling us out of darkness and into light. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and, uh, and and fulfilling all the prophecies that you gave in the Old Testament when you came and you died on the cross to cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us from our iniquity, from everything that we've done, if we would turn to you and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that for every heart in here, Lord God, that you would... You would soften them, Lord, because sometimes it can be really difficult to follow you, and sometimes it can be difficult to do your will, and it can, it can feel like we are literally dying inside. We're dying to um, what, what our flesh is screaming at us that we should do to, to save ourselves or to feel better, and Lord, your way does not lead us towards feeling better. It leads us towards holiness and, and the death of our flesh. And our flesh cries out and screams at, our, at us, saying, don't kill me, but Lord, you desire us to follow you. And even though that leads us to the death of our flesh and the death of the things that we want, Lord, it leads us to life as well. Jesus, you say, whoever follows you would have life. And God, that's what we want today, is we want to experience what the tree of life has to offer. We want to drink of the well of the water of life that comes from your heart, Jesus, and from following you in faith. So Lord, we pray for every single heart that's in here, God, that you would encourage us, that you would do the healing from the hurts, God. Every single one of us in here has been hurt, and we have have suffered, and we have gone through difficult things, and Lord, we're kind of tender, and I pray that you would do a work of healing us today. In your name we pray, amen. Today's Bible study is called, Wait, What Did He Say? And you'll find out why in just a little while. When you write a letter to someone, it can have a huge emotional impact on them. Imagine if you were a prisoner and you got a letter. Maybe you were falsely in prison. Maybe you did something stupid and you were in prison for a good reason. But it doesn't matter. Maybe you left your family and you got a letter from your wife and it said, "Baby, I love you and I miss you and I'm 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 going to be faithful to you and I'm praying for you and I'm talking to you about I'm talking about you to our kids every day. I'm just I'm there with you and and I believe in you. I believe you're going to stand strong there in prison." What kind of emotional effect do you think that would have on that prisoner? A huge effect. But the skeptic would say, well, that's just paper and ink. How can paper and ink do such a powerful thing in the heart and the soul of a person? But we know that that's true, that it does happen. It is just paper and ink. In fact, the book you hold in front of you is paper and ink, or it's electrons in your little tablet dealies as you're hashtagging it. It, it's, they those are substances, but that's not the real thing. That prisoner would go to his death to say, no, this was my wife's heart put on paper for me. It was real. I had a connection, a very real connection with my wife through that letter. It was extremely real. And in fact, it gave me hope. It gave me joy. It gave me all these things that simple paper and pen could never do. So in a sense, that letter was his wife. It became his ro- wife. C.S. Lewis does a really amazing job uh, unfolding this truth in his sermon called in- intru- Imposition. I can't remember the name of it right now uh, because it's a very difficult word to say. Transposition. Transposition is the name of the sermon. And he describes it as a drawing is on paper but you can draw anything. And in our mind, our brains can translate that into the real thing. You can see a winter scene painted with very much skill and you feel cold. You can see a, a, a difficult situation portrayed and you feel the anger of that. Yesterday we took the boys to the uh, museum and there's this big red painting of these babies and they're like hurting and, and it, was, it was a painting about the Chinese Revolution and how, how difficult that was for the people, and they were angry, and they were bloody, and it was just it was awful to look at. But why? Why? It wasn't the, the ink, the red ink, that created an emotional response in me. No, it's the real message. It's the reality that was behind it that, that produced that, that realness, okay? And so the Bible is to us what God wants us to experience. It is really God. It is really God. The Bible is so important to us. It's so vital to us. It's like like a picture, but it's more than a picture. It's like a letter, but it's it's more than a letter. It's his actual heart. Just like that prisoner needed an encouragement, he needed a connection with his wife, and he got it through that letter. The Bible is to us our connection to God. It's his word given to us. So I lay that foundation for us so that as we study chapter 3 of Genesis today, you understand the importance of God's word. God's word. It is everything to us. It is our ability to connect to a deeper spiritual realm. It is deeper than what pages contain. The Bible is more than just the words on here. It's our window, it's our gate into a deeper, more life-filled experience that we all know is real. You guys all know that love is real. You guys all know that there can be satisfaction, there can be healing, there can be joy, and this is our gate into those things. It's the way that those things come into us. It's very uh, interesting how that works. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3 real quick. And, and we'll see how, how God is going to use his word, his letter to us, his gate to, to bless us. It says here, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has indeed God said, or has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So just in case you're new to this party This crafty talking serpent here is Satan, all right? And and his only power has ever been deception or cunning, you could say. He's never been strong. In fact, we see in the end of the book of Revelation that one little angel is able to chain him up for a thousand years. So Satan isn't this big burly Arnold of angels. And he's never been right, right? He's just always been deceitful. He's never been right in the things that he says. You can never say, well, Satan's got a point there. Because he doesn't. And, and he, so, but he has been very, very smart and deceptive. He's smarter than you, he's smarter than me. And he's tricky. He's not God's twin or God's evil brother. He is commonly referred to as a snake or a serpent or a dragon throughout Scripture. Which reminds me, what did the snake give his wife? A goodnight hiss. <laughs> How do you measure a snake? In inches, of course, because he doesn't have any feet. Yes. You guys know I'm hysterical. Have you ever been driving around, and you've seen an ambulance, and you saw on every single ambulance, there's a, a, a stick, a, like a picture of a stick with a snake around it? Have you guys ever wondered why? It actually, we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it comes from the Bible. We need to understand how God uses the image of a snake throughout the Bible. He, he doesn't make this hard for us, but he, he carries this image of a snake throughout the whole Bible. And we have it up until today, even on our ambulances driving around. So I'm going to tell you why. If you would turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, we have this really interesting story of the people are coming out of the, uh, wandering through the desert. and, And they start complaining to the Lord about the food he's been giving them. Which is quite remarkable because he's been giving them angel food. Just magically appearing every, every morning, there's a bunch of this stuff called manna there waiting for them. But the people are complaining about it. And, and so in this situation, um, they're, they're all complaining and complaining to Moses. And so God sends a bunch of poisonous snakes to bite the people. This is Indiana Jones' worst nightmare. And it says in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent or a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So the people are all getting bit by these snakes. You can imagine the scene. They're just going crazy. The women are crying. The children are screaming. The men are running in fear. And they cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. We're sorry. Would you save us? And the Lord's like, yep, I'll save you. Here's how I want it to work. I want you to give me all your money. No, he didn't say that. I want you to try really, really hard to do better. He didn't say that either. You know what, children of Israel, I want you to love Moses, your leader. He didn't say that either. He asked Moses to teach them a lesson. He asked Moses to show them an example. He has said, Moses, I want you to get a pole, a stick, a piece of wood, and I want you to put a snake around that wood, just like the snakes that are biting the people just like the problem that the people have. And I want you to put that up and whoever looks at it will be saved. So can you imagine that story going throughout the the children of Israel? Hey, Moses is gonna help us out. Moses is gonna show us how to be saved. He's gonna put this snake made of bronze, which why was it made of bronze? Bronze is the metal in the Bible that speaks of judgment. And he's going to put this bronze snake up on a stick, up on a pole. Which means this snake, which speaks of evil, sin, Satan, is going to be judged on a pole, on a stick, on a tree. And if you look at it, you can be saved. I don't think the message of that is too far of a stretch for us to understand, is it? Jesus is becoming sin for us. It's amazing. It's a a, a picture for us. It's an illustration given thousands of years before Jesus came of a snake or sin being judged on a tree as a substitute for the people who deserved it i think that's amazing it's incredible so could you imagine them walking through the streets and saying hey you've been bit by a snake you've been bit by a snake we've all been bit by snakes let's just look at the snake the one that's been judged the bronze snake let's look at it but could you imagine the people that said no i don't want to look at it i got medicine over here and i got doctors over here and i got all the i, I don't i'm i'm better than this snake's not going to take me down and so they they say I am not going to look at that snake. I am not going to look at that snake in faith. And that's exactly what everyone does today. That says I'm not going to look at Jesus Christ. I'm not going to trust him for my salvation. I can deal with my sin on my own. In fact, I don't even think I was bit. Jesus even specifically identifies himself with this serpent in the New Testament. And he prophesies that he would become this snake. In John chapter 3, verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why would Jesus become a sleazy snake? In 2 Corinthians 5:21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the sleazy snake for you because you were a sleazy snake. You were bit by the sleazy snake. You had sleazy snake blood flowing through your veins. The venom had infected your blood and you needed a new heart to pump new blood. And that's what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus offers. So back in Genesis, the woman said to the serpents, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat, Of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, we're going to go back and cover a lot of things in there, but first I want to draw your attention to Adam eating of the apple. Not apple, the fruit, whatever the fruit was. We commonly think of it as an apple. I don't know why. Apples are delicious, but they're not like, I never think in my mind, ooh, that apple and lust after an apple, but it was probably some delicious strawberry or something. But anyway, um, Adam ate, and Adam knew what he was doing. He wasn't tricked at all. You know, Adam probably thought he loved Eve enough to get by, gives him all of her. Heard the songs and read the poems that say, our love is enough to pay the bills, right? Which is totally not true. Bills never get paid by love. But Adam, he probably thought, you know what? I just love Eve so much. It doesn't matter what we get ourselves into. I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay. He wanted to be with the woman more than he wanted to be obedient to God. Oh, this is getting getting deep now. He didn't want anything to get in his way of his relationship with the woman. Remember just last week, God gave him this awesome presence, right? He's lonely. God puts him to sleep, takes his rib, makes a woman, brings him a naked wife. Adam's like, woohoo, this is awesome. And he writes a little jingle. It was, it was awesome. He was having a great time. All of a sudden, Time goes by, and he is just like, I love this gift that God has given me. I love my wife. And then his wife does the wrong thing and takes the fruit, and Adam's like, uh-oh, I'm about to lose my wife. Adam thought he was going to lose his wife because of her choice. And so Adam made the choice to choose his wife over God. He made the choice to choose his relationship with his wife. Now, your, your relationship with your wife is very important, men, husbands but it is not as important as your relationship with God. And if it is, if it becomes more important to you than your relationship with God, you're going to lose it. God is going to make sure that the results of that idolatry is death. It's tough. He didn't want anything getting in the way of his relationship with his woman. No matter the cost, I will have my way, he says, he thought he could handle the consequences of sin. But he had never seen sin. He had never sinned. No one had ever sinned. And so, how did he know? Well, he just thought, man, I could probably handle this. I can do anything. I'm Adam. I romp around here like I own the place. In fact, I do. God gave me the whole earth. I walk around here naked like it's my living room. He, he, he was overconfident. He thought he could handle the consequences, he thought he was man enough. But he wasn't. Death came. As you read through the end of the chapter, we'll see that. We'll get there. In Romans 5.12, it helps us understand that. It says, therefore, as by one man death entered into the world and death by sin, or sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So because Adam made this choice, you and I all have a sin nature. We all are living with the consequences of Adam's choice. Unless you think that you could have done a better job than Adam, you're wrong. He was our champion. He was our hero. He didn't have a dysfunctional family he came from. He never got influenced by MTV. He didn't have any influence except for God himself. And he still screwed up. So Adam was the best man there ever could have been and yet he still messed up. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. It's the reason why Jesus had to become a man. Because in Adam, Adam sentenced every single one of us to death. But Jesus, when he became a man, he, it, it it's, it's then works that he could rescue every man from death. So when Adam sinned, everything broke. Everything broke in the world, in his marriage, and I want husbands to take very close note of this. Take very close note. It always comes back to you. Always. Where was Adam when his wife was hanging out by the tree? It's a great question. I don't have an answer. But he had something else going on that was more important to him than being with his wife and discipling her. Well... Where was he when she was hanging out by a creepy talking snake? Why would you let your wife do that? Why wouldn't you be there to intercede, intercept some of this information or misinformation? What in the world was more important to him than hanging out with Eve? The best gift God could have given him, what was more important to him? He had just invented golf probably or bowling or something, but that, that became to him more important. Gosh, why? Why did he let anything get more important than his role of being the priest and the pastor of his own home? He was not being that priest to his wife. He was not teaching and caring for her or, and not protecting, giving her the protection that she needed. He was off doing his own thing. He thought he, maybe he thought he had done enough already. Maybe he thought that he had given her enough leadership And he could now release her to make her own decisions. I mean, there wasn't any people around to trick her. So he thought, eh, she's probably fine while I go explore Antarctica and the beaches down there or something. But he was very wrong. And it's not because she was sinful. That's not the issue here. It wasn't because he failed her. In fact, God never says that she sinned as we read. She was deceived, God says. It doesn't say she sinned. It's, not, it's because he failed her. He failed to prepare her and to protect her. He failed her because she ate. But she ate, you might say. It's, it's her fault. She ate because he failed her. Because he failed her. He was the one responsible. He was the leader. And he failed. The biggest failure wasn't that he wasn't there, I don't think. I mean, he can go golf if he wants to, I guess. And maybe it's not that he trusted her. Oh, you just can't trust women. No, that's not the, the conclusion we need to reach, that all women are just crazy. We don't have evidence that always proves that. It was <laughs> that wasn't a joke. I, I wasn't like, <laughs> just kidding. It wasn't because she, you know, she's just a woman, and, and that's what she was going to do, and so he needed to be there. It wasn't anything like that. No, the biggest failure was that he opened the door for her to be deceived by teaching her or creating an environment where she believed in legalism. What? Legalism. It strikes very first. Legalism is pretty much the cause for this original sin. Legalism. Legalism. Let's look carefully at what that means. How does this deception happen? Why was Satan able to deceive Eve? How did this all happen? Let's break it down. He said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan's first job is to twist around God's word, God's message to us. And he twisted around and he changes it from a positive where God said, you can eat of any tree of the garden. Just be careful of that one over there. To a negative and it implies Satan t- turns God's words to imply that God is hiding something and holding something back from her instead of that God was protecting her and loving her which was the truth Satan twists it and he only does it by a subtle implication that there's something hidden, there's something that God is hiding from you, there's more to this life than you're living and he knew he couldn't come out there and say it's all about the Benjamins It's the rims, that's what you're missing, the ice. No, he had to subtly say, there's just something more. There's something more. And that's the exact same way that Satan attacks people all over the world, even today. He gets them to doubt God's word, which leads to neglecting God's word. He gets us to doubt God's word, which leads us to neglecting God's word. And then it says, and the woman said to the serpent well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, Eve's first problem is that she's talking to a snake, right? If the snake comes up and talks to you, you learned at church, don't talk to him, all right? No good can come from a discussion with a master manipulator. She doesn't, and here's the big thing. She doesn't know the name of the tree. God had just taught Adam what the tree's name was. But Eve, she's like, oh, it's, there's one that's just in the midst of the garden somewhere over there. I don't know. Adam said something about it. And he told me, don't eat it, don't even touch it, lest you die. It, the name of the tree is so important. It spoke volumes about the reason for God's command, about God's heart, God's provision. And we learned last week, it spoke about man's way versus God's way. It's, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was this tree of life. And, and that's what always has been the struggle laid before every man that you have God's way, which is life. He says, walk with me and live, obey me and live, trust me and live, abide with me and live. And then there's man's way, which is rebellion, which says, make your own decisions about what's right and wrong. I don't need to do it God's way. I can decide what's right and wrong. I don't need to just follow you and listen to everything you say. I can figure this out on my own. I don't want anyone holding me back. What if it's fun? What if I'm missing out on something? That's what the names of those trees taught Adam and Eve. And all this was shared with Adam, but Adam failed to teach any of this to his wife or to share any of it with his wife. He didn't share why they needed to obey God for life. He didn't share with her that your whole life source is is bound up in your relationship with God. No. He didn't share God's heart with her, his plan for life, his plan to bless them and to keep them protected in this garden. He didn't do that. Which is, it brings up a good question. Are you sharing God's heart with people around you, or are you just giving them a rule to keep? Which is what Adam did. Eve, make me some dinner, and don't touch that tree. It's not, it's not right. It's not how God wanted him to treat her. When we, when parents, when we are telling our kids and discipling them and growing them, are we just giving them a list of rules or are we explaining God's heart to them? There's a time for that. Eve's response shows a deeper problem, though. She, she said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She added to God's word because God did not say, don't touch the tree. Maybe the tree looked like a baseball. Maybe the fruit did. And they could have played baseball all day with it. It would have been fine. He didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. She added something. God, She thought by adding an additional rule, it would keep her safe. Or maybe Adam thought that. And Satan jumps on that lack of knowledge of God's word to bring deception and convince her to sin. See, I don't know if the legalism was hers or if it was just taught to her by Adam, but I suspect that Adam exaggerated God's word and brought in the first instance of this legalism into the world. Because legalism is adding some restriction to someone that God does not require. Like, think about with me the Sabbath day. You know, it was meant to be a blessing. God said, just take a day off once a week. We talked about this last week. I will provide all you need for seven days of life in only six days of work. It was a promise. Just to be a blessing. Have a day off. Enjoy your family. Enjoy me. Go fishing. Who cares? But man turned it into a ridiculous joke and a huge burden. Over the centuries and over the years, they had rules like, if you have a wooden leg, you have to take that off on the Sabbath and hobble around. That was literally a rule. If you had dentures that were made of wood, you had to take them out and talk like a weirdo on the Sabbath. If you had to spit, don't do it on the Sabbath day, because it makes mud, and that's work. It became this ridiculous burden on everyone's lives. And even when the church was young, you know, in the first couple hundred years of the church, they started wearing robes to church. You know, we don't wear robes anymore, but that's fine. They did at the beginning. And it's really interesting why they originally started doing that, is because there were some rich people there, and they were in the church. And there were poor people that that could only afford poor people clothes. And the poor people clothes was robes. The rich people could have nicer, fancier clothes. Maybe I don't know what their rich people clothes were back then, but they were something nice. So what happened is the church got together and they said, you know what? The poor people are feeling kind of self-conscious about coming in wearing robes and they look different from everyone. And so here's what we're going to do. To be loving, we are going to all put on robes. We're going to all dress to the, to the lowest common denominator, and we're, it's a way that we're going to show love. So was wanting to dress up a bad thing? No, the rich people just had their clothes that they wore. They were more comfortable, probably. But they decided to start wearing robes. Well, a couple hundred years go by, and what happens? The robes all of a sudden have fancy designs and, and gold stuff and jingle bells all over them, and it became crazy. The robes became what the rich people wore. And so it switched, and the church didn't necessarily adjust. They just said, we've been wearing robes for centuries, so we're going to keep doing that because it was the right thing to do back then. But is it the right thing to do now? Is that the most loving thing to do with the people in your congregation? Or did it create separation between the clergy and the people, which probably shouldn't have been? It's very good things to think about when you're thinking about church history because there were 613 laws in the Old Testament you know, and it's all summed up by two, by Jesus who said love God and love other people. Legalism is everything else in the church and religion except those two things. Does it love God? Because that's, that's the law. That's what Jesus said I come to bring. I'm changing stuff. I want you to just love God and love other people. That's the law of love that he brings us. And legalism opens the door for deception because when people think that God cares more about how they dress or what they eat or what, how they talk or where they work than he does about their heart, they are wide open for Satan to come in and say, that's not the kind of God you want to serve or know, is it? And they say, you're right. I don't want a God that cares about my outward appearance. I want a God that cares about my heart. Does God care about your heart? Yes, absolutely that's what this is all about. But they get this message through legalism that says, no, it's about how you, how you look. It's about what you do and don't do. And the, here's the thing. If you don't get anything else out of today, get this. It seems smart to add extra safeguards, doesn't it? It seems like, you know, to go over the top in conservative ways. But if God didn't say it, don't add it. Why? Because it's the integrity of the word of God that's at stake. By adding to God's word, you are saying, whether you believe it or not, you're saying what God said isn't good enough. I'm smarter than God. I can't just hear his word and keep it and trust him that it's going to be enough. No, I have to do more. I have to add some of my fleshly efforts into this recipe to get anything to bake to get any sort of real spiritual life in my life. And that's how we become an imitation of a truly spiritual person. A truly spiritual person trusts God's word, believes by faith and lives by faith in God's word alone. He trusts his word at every point with no doubt, and so he eats of the tree of life every day. And he gets blessed. To eat of the tree of life is to read your Bible and believe it. A legalistic person doubts God's sufficiency to simply bless his word and he feels the need to add his own word, rules and regulations to kind of make up for all the things God forgot or God didn't know about. Does God ask you to dress up for church? No, that is not in the Bible. Is it okay if you do? Yes. But don't you? But don't think that it's God's word when it's not. We are the most free people in the world who follow Jesus. Does God tell us what kind of music to listen to? Does God tell us how to dress? Does God tell you what to to do for fun or your hobbies? Does God even tell you what to eat? He puts an overarching command that covers all of these things without having to specifically give directions for each one. He says, love God and love others. So does God tell you what kind of music to listen to? Well, he says to love him. And so what I fill my head with should encourage me to love God. How should I dress? Well, I should love others, so I should dress modestly as to not stumble them or lead them to be tempted or to lust or to envy. It's important. What about my hobbies, my food, where I work, It's all governed by love. That's how God works. So if you have a lack of love in any area, we confess it and ask Jesus to provide it for us, which can be tough because, you know, so wearing nice clothes to church may demonstrate your love and respect for God, but it also might make someone who doesn't have such nice clothes feel ashamed or unworthy. So the right thing to do may be to wear the cheaper clothes because it shows love to your neighbor and shows that you have God's heart of love, which honors him as well. But Eve, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma, Eve, added to God's word. She didn't trust God's word as being enough, and so she was primed and ready for a fall. She's already at the cliff because of her doubt in God's word. Satan is now just going to give a little push. He's such a cunning He's so cunning and he's so smart at knowing when we doubt and where we doubt. And that's why believing is so important. It keeps us away from the edges of the cliffs. Believing is more important than understanding. Believing is more important than understanding. Anselm of Canterbury was this awesome bishop or pastor of Eng- in England in 1093. And he was one of the first theologians that was able to prove God's existence through logic and reason. So he's a really smart guy. I mean, he had all these great arguments and great books. But he even even said that the understanding would be of no profit to any man if he didn't believe. See, people aren't atheists because of evidence. It's because they don't want to be convicted or convinced. And so this guy Anselm says it's more important to believe because when you believe, things will start making sense. But no matter how much you want to try to prove to someone God, or God's work or God's truth, if they don't believe, they're, they're just at this cliff already, and Satan is just tossing them off, left and right. So the serpent says to the woman, in his little push, he says, "You will not surely die, For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." It's crazy, because Ephesians 4:27 says, "Don't give place to the devil." Don't listen to him. But what is Eve doing? She's listening to him. She heard his direct contradiction to God's word because she was listening to him. See, now Satan, he's just like, you know what, God's a liar. Because she's sitting there having a conversation with him. Paul says in Ephesians, don't have conversations with the devil. He's too good at tricking. He's too good. But she gave him a place. She wasn't focusing on God's word. That's all she had to focus on. God said, enjoy your life and stay away from that. Just focus on those two things. Don't listen to a conversation about, well, is it really wrong? No, just don't listen. Just focus on God's word. You could say, we are always more susceptible of being tricked when we're not abiding in the word. Always. Satan says, you will not die. Satan wants Eve and us to forget about the consequences of sin. It's not what you think. It's not what God said. Don't worry about it. You're better than that. It won't be that way for you. You deserve a break today. All of which say, God is a liar. So how can a liar be trusted or be believed? Satan is attacking the foundation of believing, the faith. He is telling the inmate who received the letter, that letter is a forgery and your wife is sleeping with some other dude. That's what he's doing. He's eroding the foundation of the reality of the relationship. So Satan says, sin isn't so bad. It isn't worthy of death even. You're not going to die. Barnhouse is a great um, author. He says, Satan and the flesh will present a thousand reasons to show how good it would be to disobey his command." So, they, they have so many reasons why. It's not that bad. And he says to her, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Satan mixes truth with lies so well that Eve can't tell the difference anymore. Their eyes would be opened. It's true. That's truth. Satan told the truth to their own sin and rebellion and condemnation is the part he left out. Bummer. This mixture of truth with a lie is what makes him a good tempter. And, and God's pure word so very important to us. He says, you will be like God. Satan convinces her that God was holding her back from a better life. And God is not holding you back. He's inviting you in to a better life. And he says, you'll know good and evil. If you only, <laughs> I picture Satan here. It's, it's kind of like the emperor. If you only knew the power of the dark side. <laughs> That's Satan right there. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and to made themselves coverings. So Eve was done. She was tricked. She was his puppet now. She doesn't flee like she should flee temptation, she considered it. She thought about it, not remembering God's word, but reasoning in her own head. Oh, it's, oh should I do? Oh, now I'm all confused and my husband's not here. He's playing golf and oh my gosh, what do I do? Just freaking out. All because the big problem that she was not letting the word of God tell her what to do. She was trying to figure it out on her own, and that's a big problem in our world when people are trying to use intellect to make their decisions instead of trusting God's word. Now, that doesn't mean we can't use intellect to see God's word is intellectually accurate and true, but we have to be careful that we don't put our intellect on a higher level than God's word. Whenever we use intellect to make a decision instead of trusting God's word, we are falling like Eve, You are not able to figure out your life because Satan is smarter than you. No matter how smart you think you are, he's smarter. But he's not right. Satan is smarter than you, but he's not right. And God gives us what's right. He says, I do love you. My letter is true. I do love you. And Satan says, no, all these reasons why. I mean, blah, 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 blah. None of her thoughts were actually true. Eve's as she was thinking and reasoning, but who needs truth anyway? It's how I perceive the world, right? I mean, I observed, my observation told me this, this, and this, but, well, it wasn't right. But there actually is absolute truth in this world, and we have access to it through the word of God. So the, the moment they ate, the deception is revealed, they now see just fine, but it's not at all what Satan had promised. They see shame. They see nakedness. They see guilt. They see sin. They are exposed. And that's where we leave them today. When you depart from the simple word of God revealed from, to you, it will end in shame, embarrassment, devastation, and death. Death of your relationships. Death of your relationships fruitful Christian life, death of everything that is real and important to you. Satan promised them vision, but they ended up blind to the glory of God, all because they forsook the word of God that was spoken to them. They said, we can figure this out. We can do it without God. And God says, no, you can't. I've given you my word for because it's real and you've got to trust it. So the Bible is everything to us. It is our letter. It is God's heart poured out to us. It is literally him and the reality of who he is given to us. So stay in the word of God, okay, everyone? Amen. Let's all stand up. And as we sing just one last song, Lord Jesus, we pray to you and we, we thank you, Lord God, that you take a name upon yourself in John chapter one, that you are called the Word of God. And in that name, it tells us, it explains to us that you have filled up the pages of this scripture with your heart, who you really are. And as we read these words, they are more to us than just ink and paper and electrons and, and lumens and all the stuff in the computers. <laughs> but Jesus, you are our God. And you are our source and you love us and you're calling us to walk with you. To turn away from our life, our beliefs, our reason that, that Satan has twisted to make us think and feel that we don't need you. And God, we turn to you in simplicity and saying, I have nothing else. I have made a royal mess of my life. But God, I believe the word that says that you will take me back if I had to repent. And so, Lord God, I repent. I turn away from my choices, my life, the way I think things should be, and I turn to you, and I will love the people in my life that I'm supposed to. And I will serve the people in life I'm supposed to. Not because they deserve it, but because, God, you call me to it. And, Lord, I don't have the strength to do that. And so I feel like when I make the choice to do this, I'm literally crawling up on the cross and having nails pierced through me because it hurts so bad. But Lord, you give me a promise that I will experience your grace in your life if I were to follow you. Even though following you hurts. Even though it's death to myself. There is life in you, Jesus, and I believe it. And so I make this choice to follow you. And God, I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit, I ask Jesus that you would flood the hearts in this room. And you would make us understand and believe your word, your promises. Lord, we need you so much. If there's anyone in here that, that has never believed or understood that that Jesus was their substitute on the cross, that he was their snake hanging on the wooden pole for their sin. I pray that right now you would make a choice to pray and say, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for me as my substitute, and I will follow you. Come into my life. I receive the Holy Spirit. I don't earn the Holy Spirit. I receive it as a gift Freely given by an offering God, a a giving God, a gracious God. I receive you, Jesus. And for those of you who are struggling and going through the most difficult times in your life, know that God loves you and has compassion on you. And he has no um, desire to harm you or hurt you. But he has every desire to save you. And maybe the choices of your flesh are leading you towards a place where you will be hurt. Or maybe you've been hurt. God de- has a desire to save you. And I pray that, that that would be a reality in your life. You would accept his grace, his gifts. And Jesus, we love you more than anything in our life, more than anything in this world. And we pray that you would be increased in our hearts. And, our, and your word would never depart from our lips or in our minds. And we would let it govern us.